Simon Ponsonby, in his amazing book, God is For Us, which you can buy today on our bookstore, uh, recalls the statistic that 21% of people here in the UK have felt in the past year that people were against them. And 9% of people even believed that they were being interfered with by some outside force or person. Simon states, I must confess at times I've got a tendency to paranoia. And if you've met him, you might, you might uh, realize that one. And then he says, of course, maybe I'm not paranoid. Maybe my worries are true. During one bout of mild paranoia, he shared his anxieties with a friend. And he got this response, a helpful reality check. Simon, forget it. You're irrelevant. No one cares about you. <laughs> Many people, Simon then argues in the book, says that uh, they fear that God is out to get them, to trip them up. To trip them up. Is God out to get us? Or is God for us? Even preachers, apparently, have been known to leave people thinking that God hates them. One quite famous preacher apparently preached this. God doesn't think you're cute. He doesn't think it's funny. He doesn't care if you compare yourself to someone worse than you. He hates them too. <laughs> Jolly sermon. Downloaded 10,000 times, so someone must like that sort of stuff. But could, could it actually be true? God certainly hates sin, and what's not to hate? Sin destroys us, it kills us, it steals from us, it robs us of joy and hope. God hates sin, but does he hate us as sinners? And uh, no, says Simon Ponsonby, quoting a famous London-based preacher called John Stott. God does not love us because Christ died for us. Christ died for us because God loved us. I'll read that again. God does not love us because Christ twisted his arm by dying for us on the cross. Christ died for us on the cross because Father God loved us so much that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. So when these verses that we've had read say, if God is for us, who can be against us? They're doing something that I sometimes do with our, our staff team here or with our children. They're asking a question that's purely rhetorical. You don't want an answer back. If God is for us, of course he is for us. It's a question that demands a silent response. If he's for us, yes, he's for us. Yes, he's for us. Yes, he is for us. And because God is for us, who can be against us? If you've got all the force behind the creation of the universe behind you, which idiot in your workplace can resist that force? You say, well, how can you be so confident that God is for us? And there's three reasons from this passage I want to bring out to you. Number one, God is for us in the cross of Jesus, in his substitution. Romans 8.32 He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. Apparently, I've not counted it myself, but there's over 40 places in the New Testament that specifically tells us that the death of Jesus was a death for us, in the place of us, instead of us, for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Here's a few examples. Christ suffered for us, for you, for me. He suffered for us. 
We say at communion, this is my body given for you. This is my blood poured out for you. Jesus died for us. God made him who had no sin become sin for us. Christ became a curse for us. Jesus Christ gave himself as a ransom for us. Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. And so one of the great theologians of last century, Karl Barth, says this. Look once again to the cross of Jesus, to his death on the cross. Look again and try to understand that what he died and suffered, he died and suffered for you, for me, for all of us. He carried away our sin, our captivity, our suffering, and did not carry it in vain. Number one, God is for us because a man died nakedly blooded on a cross 2,000 years ago in our place. Number two, God is for us in his provision. Romans 8.32 again says this in full. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. Now, if you've uh, ever experienced what it's like to have children write a Christmas wish list, uh, the idea that you can get all things seems to be top of their little sort of primary school agendas. <laughs> you know, I want the Nintendo Wii and a Ferrari for when I'm 17 with the driving lessons. Uh, I, want, I want this toy and that toy and everything. I want all things. And there's something almost infantile about wanting all things. Um, it was it Queen, wasn't it? I want it all, I want it all, and I want it now. <laughs> it's sort of childish, but we can relate to it. There's a bit of us that wants it all as well. <laughs> but in this passage, the phrase graciously give us all things is future orientated. It's better than a Christmas wish list where you get all of the things and ruin yourself with your materialism. All things, in another passage by the same author, it says that all things have been put under God's feet. In other words, when Jesus conquered Satan and this world on the cross, everything, all things were put under Jesus' feet. He inherits everything. And not just in the mess that it's in now, he's going to make all things new. And then they're under his feet. All of this planet, Earth, is the inheritance of God's people. We are heirs with Christ. The universe, Venus, Pluto, all these places that you've never been to, star systems you've never yet heard about, are going to be recreated for eternity. I kind of think we're going to get to do space travel. You know, so you're like, I've got a bucket list and I've got to get to New Zealand and see Gary and Teresa. Well, hold your horses. (laughs) You can do that in eternity. I reckon you can just turn up like that in eternity. I must see the Andes before I die. Why on earth bother? In eternity, you'll be able to just sort of teleport there. And then you pop to Mars next day as well. Heaven isn't a place you sit to in a cloud. It's a place you sometimes go up a ladder to. And enjoy the whole of the new creation the rest of the time where you get to work well, doing wonderful, wonderful things. We're going to live on a new heaven and a new earth. And all things are your inheritance. So you go and see Gary and Teresa because they'll like the company. (laughs) But you don't need to. All things are your inheritance. Jesus told his disciples that he was going back to the Father to prepare a place for them to go. Just like a child anticipates their birthday party for months and months to come, and we've got 
a child who plans his next birthday party after he's decided what this birthday party that hasn't yet happened is going to be. Because <laughs> he already wants to know what else he can get next year. Kids are good at anticipating these things, aren't they? Just like they anticipate this party. So there is an incredible party planner who has been anticipating a party for the last 2,000 years. Jesus has put an army of angels on duty to create a feast like you can't imagine, to organize clothes for you to wear on arrival, to give you the best food, the best music. No expense has been spared for the party God has prepared for you, for me. God is for us. He will graciously give us all things we share in his victory spoils as his heirs. Number one, then, the cross of Jesus. Number two, the future he's prepared for you, the inheritance. He gives us all things. Number three, God is for us in his intercession. That means his prayers. Did you know God's a prayer? Isn't that an amazing revelation? It's because God's always talking to his wonderful self, three persons yet one. He's a relational God. We saw last week that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us in 8 verse 26. Now here in 834, we see that Jesus Christ is also at the right hand of God, putting in a word for us with his dad. (laughs) Dad, look, it's Ollie. (laughs) Look after him today. Bless him. Bless Teresa. Bless Jan. Look after them, Lord. All the time, this incredible prayer is going on. And not only is that true, but also the Father himself is searching our hearts to read the Spirit's mind and listening to Jesus pray. Spirit, Son, and Father praying together for us. There was once a man called Robert Murray McCain, a great Scottish saint. He once said, If I could hear Christ praying in the room next to me, I would not fear a million enemies. (laughs) Yet distance makes no difference whatsoever. He is praying for me. Christ is still in the next room praying for us. He ever lives to make intercession. But You you might say, as someone I was speaking up in Birmingham last night, and she responding to a word that we have for her in a car about anxiety. You might say, I I sort of get it. I understand what you're saying. There's the cross, there's the heaven, there's that they're praying for us. I sort of get it here. But I'm not sure he's for me here. Maybe there's a big voice from your past that just echoes down through history. God, you're stupid. (laughs) You'll never amount to anything. You always let me down. You never do the right thing. If only you were like your brother, your sister, your mother, your friend, your cousin. Can God really be for us? Maybe Jesus is nice. You know, big fancy dress, beard, hippie thing, walking around healing people. But God... What about him? I was reading an R.T. Kendall book this week down in my prayer room. And one line really struck me with this in mind. It says this. Perhaps you will say, then Jesus is for me and God is against me. 
wrong. The Father of Jesus is our Father, who lavished on us great grace, that means great kindness, and does so with all wisdom and understanding. Never think that Jesus is working for you and God the Father is working against you. Jesus perpetually accepts us as we are, but it intercedes according to the will of Father God. The will of Father God is infallible. And then he says this, at the end of the day, not only will you have no complaints when you stare into his face, face to face in heaven, but you will also marvel at his goodness, at his wisdom, even thanking him for not doing what you and I initially wanted him to do. Even thanking him for not doing what you initially wanted him to do. Last Monday morning, I I was signed up for prayer slots in our prayer chain. And I picked up the film, The Shack, that I'd just bought and stuck it on the sofa for an extended prayer session and started watching this film. I was in heartbroken, full-blown blubbing mode right from the start of the film. For those of you who don't know the story of this best-selling book, it really stacks the bases on an emotional level. It follows the story of a man who was abused as a child by his drunken father, who was a church member. And then, as a child, he poisons his father to death. As the book picks it up, he's living out his adult existence quite happily alongside his saintly wife and his three kids, until one of the kids is cruelly pulled away from him by another abuser. And all this happens while the man is heroically distracted, saving the life of another one of his children from a foolish boating accident on a lake. After this experience, as you might expect, he spends the next several years absolutely sure that if God exists... He's not for him. And the rest of the story is a great allegory that I'll try not to ruin you in a quick telling. But in the story, whilst he's in a coma, God reveals himself to the man in ways that he can understand. Revealing himself as a, as a mother figure as well as a father figure. He takes him back to the place of his pain and gives him the chance to complain, to shout, to grieve. By the end of the weekend in the coma, he's a whole new person for having met with, eaten with, shouted at, and been loved by the living God in all three of his forms, Father, Son, and Spirit, or Papa, Jesus, and Saria, as he has it. What about you? What about me? What place of pain do you or I have that threatens to keep you locked away from experiencing the love of God? Was it a hurt in your childhood? A sense of abandonment, a sense of loss, a marriage gone wrong? A sibling who surpasses you? A life goal not yet ticked off? Maybe never ticked off? A deep grief? A riling at deep injustice of the world? You ever have one of those blocks that makes you think he can't be for me? Well, if... As you or me, Romans 5 to 8 in its entirety, this whole series we've done may have been written just for you. And look how it finishes in the words of our passage today. I'm going to read Romans 8, 35 through 39 as we close. Who shall separate us 
and the love of Christ. So trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. No, no, by no means. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved me and loved you and loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. God is for you and he loves you. Amen.